This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Today's show is brought to you in honor of the new season of special guest Lauren Lapkus that is out right now on Stitcher Premium. Now, if you love podcasts, you know Lauren Lapkus. And if you know Lauren Lapkus, you know that she is the ruler of all podcasts that she surveys. And if you know that, you know that she needs a challenge because she could talk all day on the mic. So she has come up with, with special guest Lauren Lapkus. And the premise of the show is wild. What she does is she invites a guest every week and the guest comes up with a theme of what the show is about. And they don't even tell Lauren. She has to wing it. It's like improv the podcast. I mean, if you want an example, I would just start with the episode that she does with Mary Holland. Mary Holland comes in and she's like, oh, hello. Welcome to my show. It's about being a failed beauty queen. Right? Tell me about how you were a failed beauty queen. And Lauren just has to roll with it. So it is freeform. It's wild. It's crazy. It is the way of seeing a podcast master develop even new, powerful, mighty, mighty strengths. And if you want to start listening to a special guest, Lauren Lapkus, right now, well, you should. And you can listen to it ad-free only on Stitcher Premium. So if you want to try a free month of Stitcher Premium, what you're going to do right now is you're going to go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code UNSPOOLED, and you will get a free month of this amazing show, a bazillion other amazing shows. You can listen to podcasts like nonstop. You can listen when you sleep. You can listen to them all the time. You'll go crazy. So go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code UNSPOOLED and start listening today. Hey, guess who has a new podcast out right, 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 right now? It's a name you know, and it's a name you love. It is Bill Nye, the science guy. And he has a new podcast out now called Science Rules. Yes, I grew up with Bill Nye. I worship Bill Nye. And this is the show where, you know, do you remember being a kid and you had like a million questions and you were like annoying your parents like, oh, I want to know this. I want to do this. This is the show where Bill Nye answers all the questions that you didn't realize have been rattling around in the back of your brain like since the end of time. Will I ever be able to upload my brain to a computer? which is one thing I'm absolutely hoping to do just to like haunt people forever. Also, here's the question I think about every week. Like, should we stop eating cheeseburgers to combat climate change? And also just on like a minor tip, how often should I really be washing my pillowcases? Because I think I maybe overwash them, but I'm also wondering if I underwash them. It's very hard to tell. And I want a science person, the science expert, Bill Nye the Science Guy to tell me, all right, here's what you got to do 
to be a part of this universe and do it well. So if you have a question that you've always wanted Bill Nye to answer, this is the show. He takes calls from listeners and he answers all of their weird, embarrassing, funny, and occasionally more serious questions. So the first episode of Science Rules is out right now. Think about what you want him to tell you and subscribe so that you never, ever, ever miss learning something awesome. It's 1962. And unsupervised children can roam anywhere in their small town and learn about racism. The movie? To Kill a Mockingbird. Hey everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. Paul Shear will be here very, 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 very shortly. And as you know, this is the show where he and I are working through the entire AFI Top 100 films from the 2007 edition to talk about them today, how they hold up, why they're important, what they mean to us today. I love doing this. And last week, the conversation that we were all having was about Silence of the Lambs. And I have to say, this was one of my favorite weeks of just internet chatter after we dropped an episode. It was awesome. And I have a million things I want to shout out. So I'm just going to plunge in. One, over on the Facebook group, there was a poll that actually phrased a question that Paul and I are kind of kicking around here a little bit. And we're going to kick around a little bit more when we get to the Overlook Film Festival uh, in New Orleans in a couple weeks, which is the question, is Silence of the Lamb a horror film? And this was a pretty close vote, actually. It was not a runaway on either side. And the ultimate answer was no. Silence of the Lambs is a thriller, which means horror films have one less thing they can claim on the AFI Top 100. I mean, I Jaws, I go back and forth on Jaws. We're going to talk about Jaws when we get to Jaws, but I go very back and forth on that. Also on the forum, there were two additions, conversational additions to talks that Paul and I were having. One, Paul and I were bagging on the font, the opening font. And there was a really interesting back and forth of people kind of sticking up for the titles, including Brian Wolf, a guy who seems to know a lot about fonts, who made a really solid argument that these gigantic block letters are made to be intentionally bad so that people feel off kilter, so that it's unpredictable, so that when you just see these opening titles, you feel like you're set on edge. Also, uh, Paul did some snorting when I read a review that called Nick Nolte hot. Uh, and we were informed, and I actually really appreciate this. I can't believe that this was a thing. But in 1992, Nick Nolte was actually voted People's Sexiest Man Alive. So yeah, if you were a dude writing about who women might find hot, you would absolutely call on Nick Nolte. Wow. Wow. Times change. There's also some good conversation about something that I meant to touch on and we didn't get to, which is all of the swastikas in Buffalo Bill's house. Make of that what you will in modern times. And related to that, you know, we were trying to talk a bit about, like, the history of, you know, protests against the film, about LGBTQ activists, like, really taking a stance with it, even at the time. You know, that, like, reading it as a complicated story about what are we saying about villainy, that Buffalo Bill has such issues with his body. It's a big whole thing. And if you want to learn more about it, there are a couple of things that uh, Spoolers pointed out on the thread. First, Liz Brookover linked to a post on Reddit slash Ask Transgender, which actually had a huge, long, really good thread of transgender people talking about their feelings on Buffalo Bill. And secondly, Daniel McVeigh was actually in Queer Nation, one of the groups that we talked about when the silence protests were happening. And Daniel raised this idea that he really does wonder if when people like Bill Maher today argue against things like trans bathroom bills, um, Bill Maher, he says, is like kind of brought up this image of a scary man in a dress who wants to harm women. Daniel says, like, can you tell me today that people like Mar aren't picturing Buffalo Bill, that this image hasn't gotten into our subconscious? 
And yeah, that, yes, yes. These are all the things that I like that we get to talk about on the show. So now let's talk about this week's movie. 1962's To Kill a Mockingbird. And now our call-in for this week was we asked you guys, if you recast the role of Atticus Finch today, which we can absolutely do because we have the new book, uh, it's complicated, from Harper Lee that came out, who would you cast as Atticus Finch? Let's take a listen. Unspooled. I would love to cast my vote for Kyle Chandler to play Atticus Finch. I would cast Jeff Goldblum to play Atticus Finch, but... I would cast him to replace pretty much any other character in any movie on this list. I believe Tom Hanks would be playing Atticus Finch, of course. I mean, he can play every hero imaginable. He's going to play Mr. Rogers. He's played Sully. He's played Forrest Gump. Michael Shannon has the better acting chops and his experience as uh, in playing Southern gritty characters in uh, several Jeff Nichols movies. I think uh, Michael Shannon would be my first choice. Boy, Phil and Gregory Peck shoes is a tall order, but, you know, I think Mark Ruffalo could do it. I would love to see Colin Farrell play Atticus Finch. Tom Hanks. That's all. Huh. I mean, I have seen Colin Farrell murder so many people that I'm I'm dwelling on this. However, I will say that when he tilts his eyebrows up... No, I don't know. This is this is an Atticus Finch that I find cute, and now I'm uncomfortable. I think Atticus Finch should be, like, beyond cute. He should just be Mount Rushmore. So maybe I'll go with Hanks. Although, I mean, everything is better with Hanks. The year is 1962. John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit the Earth. The price of a movie ticket is 70 cents. And the first Taco Bell opens in Downey, California. The first computer video game is invented, as is the audio cassette tape. Oral polio vaccine is used to combat polio. The top song is I Can't Stop Loving You by Ray Charles. And the mashed potato dance tries to compete in popularity with the twist. The shortest Oscar speech ever given was given by Patty Duke at age 16 for her role in The Miracle Worker when she simply says thank you and walks off the stage. The top movies include How the West Was Won, The Manchurian Candidate, and of course today's film, To Kill a Mockingbird, coming in at number 25, up nine points from the 1997 ranking of number 34. Amy, To Kill a Mockingbird, who's in it? What's it about? Wait, two things. One, when you win an Oscar, I want you to beat Patty Duke. You can just go up there and say, thanks. Or, peace. (laughs) (laughs) Two, Patty Duke beats out our leading lady for that prize. She beats out Mary Bottom, an unknown playing scout. And what To Kill a Mockingbird is about, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, which means you may not have gone to school at all in America, is it's about a young girl named Scout, her older brother, slightly older brother, Jim, played by Philip Alford, and their best friend, Charles Baker Dill Harris, played by John Megna. They're having a lovely rambling summer in the South in Alabama. Meanwhile, Jem and Scout's father, Atticus Finch, is undergoing this trial where a man named Tom Robinson is on trial for raping and beating a white woman named Mayella Violet Ewell. This case rattles the town. It barely rattles the consciousness of the kids, but they start to grow up and get a sense of what grown-up society is like. And also, they have the neighbor Boo Radley, played by Robert Duvall in his very first screen role. This is a film that, honestly, I was not that excited to watch. I was in New York a couple weeks ago, and I was trying to go see a show. And I was like, should I go see To Kill a Mockingbird? And I was like, ugh. The Broadway version? Yes, because I was like, oh, that would be interesting for me to be able to talk about that here and I just talked myself out of it. I was like, I don't care. I don't I don't want to see it. I got to see the movie. And there are certain films 
that feel like homework to me. And that's what this film felt like before I put it on. I was like, oh. Because it was literally homework when you were in middle school. Absolutely. But I got so pulled in and started to just be amazed at what this film does because we've watched movies that deal with racial tension. And that is always from an adult perspective. And this movie views something that is so tangible in today's society through the eyes of children. And I think it allows you to look at this in a brand new way. I mean, it starts right in the beginning when um, the guy comes and drops off hazelnuts to Atticus and it's paying him and he doesn't want to be thanked. And, and you know, and Scout is kind of learning that doesn't understand like, well, why doesn't he want to be thanked? And I was just so impressed by how this movie takes the perspective of these children and shows it th through their eyes. And we talked about last week, uh, Sons of the Lambs, and we're looking at it through Jodie Foster's eyes. And this movie does it, and it's a, a lot more subtle, but I think uh, just as effective. We're almost even looking at it through really only one kid's eyes in a way. Yes. Like, I feel like only yes. Jem, the older boy, understands what's happening. But actually, we're not really even in his eyes. Like, we see him. We see mm -hmm. him register what his younger sister, Scout, doesn't totally get. But, like, that's what makes this film really interesting is, like, I, you know, I have this real thing against fake kids in movies. Mm -hmm. And there's so much the fake kid version of this where the fake oh, kid yeah. is, like, I remember the summer I learned about racism, you know? Right. And, like, the fake kid in this movie would say something like, why are they mean to that man because of his skin color, daddy? You know? Right. And that, that doesn't happen here. Scott's, like, not even consciously aware of it in the movie has this way of just sort of lightly having the trial on the background where you're not even consciously aware of it until it stops flat for 35 minutes in the courtroom. You're kind of watching it through a child's perception of reality. They're not, you know, they're getting the glimpses of it. They're not understanding all the ins and outs. You know, you have much more of a point of view of uh, Scout Summer and with this rich kid and her brother. The beginning of the film, I think because of this, plays a little bit like an episode of The Andy Griffith Show. We're learning lessons, like, you know, don't kill a mockingbird, or, you know, some people don't like to be thanked. There's, there, like, Atticus Finch is kind of doling out life lessons. It felt very um, comfortable. Like, it didn't feel like it had the pacing of a film in the beginning because you're just kind of existing, very much like a, a Linklater film. Like, you're just kind of existing in this time and this moment, and then it just starts to grow around it. That's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching this. Like, you know, because this is a film that, of course, like, we, you know, as a kid, it was just there. It mm -hmm. was always, like, in our library's library. Like, oh, right. bored. Go watch that movie. Wait, so you've and, watched this movie multiple times. Yeah. I mean, I went to a weird school where, like, for high school, we had a modular schedule. So some days we might only have one class. Oh, wow. And when you didn't have class, you could sort of just do whatever you want as long as you were on campus in some sort of room. And there was, like, in our uh, high school library, it was all-girls Catholic school. There was a little room with a bunch of VHS tapes. And so we would just go in there and watch old movies all day. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how, like, I've seen the Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet a million times. Because, oh like, my there's gosh, yes. a naked ass in there. And we were like, yeah. Oh, so we that and Clash of the constantly. Titans. Get that on a TV screen in a classroom. <laughs> You're going to see boobs. You're going to see butt. Things are happening. <laughs> the best thing for a sixth grader. But, yeah, so I've seen it because of that. I think I'd always associated this movie as being just, like, the action figure of the book, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Right. Like, you've read the book. Here it is just in a movie. And I don't think I really ever thought of this movie as a movie as much as an extension of people getting the book shoved into their brain. Right. And so I feel like I had a similar approach to with this where I was like, all right, I'll watch this thing that I know. 
And I had never, I realized watching it, I had never watched To Kill a Mockingbird, thinking mm-hmm. of it as a film and not just like the appendix of something right. that existed. Right. As a separate entity that take away everything else. Now you're an adult. You're just watching a classic. Exactly. And when I did that, this film felt groundbreaking. This film yeah. felt pivotal in a way that I had never realized. The, the structure of this movie feels kind of avant-garde, honestly. Mm. It feels sort of like a movie that was maybe inspired more by like neorealism or something. Yeah. Like what was coming out of Europe than like our kind of structure. It Terrence isn't like- Malick even, you know, it's like yeah, this thing we're just it, watching, we're it existing. It like bleeds from one moment to another. It's not really like, here's what we're about. We're yeah. about racism. And honestly, if it is about anything, if there's any kind of structure to it, sort of, it's that at the beginning of the film, Scout and Jem kind of don't respect their dad too much. They right. Don't, they make fun of him, like, here. You be good, children. Mind Carol. Morning, Morty. Morning, Atticus. He won't let me have a gun, and he'll only play touch football with me. Never tackle. He can make somebody's will so airtight you can't break it. You count your blessings and stop complaining, both of you. Look at that. The idea of, like, not playing tackle football and playing with guns, it, it seems so of the now. And and I and I think it's the way the kids look at their parents, like, oh, they're no fun. And, and I think the first turning point where the kids start to respect him is when he shoots that dog. You know, he sharpshoots that dog. Yeah, and they're you like, know, did you know your dad was the best shooter in town? They're like, no, you told me he made wills, which I don't care about. And Like, wills that were watertight. I don't know what that is. Oh, he can shoot a dog? And then and then you have that moment of, like, them being in the courtroom and yeah. them being told to stand for their dad, which made me oh, cry. made me cry. This movie... As a dad, are you like, yes, some, my oh, children, you will stand for me? There are so many things that make me cry as a parent, and, and this movie triggered a lot of them. But, you know, it's this idea that they went from, he's just a boring man... To, oh, he actually can use a gun. That's cool. And then they realize, no, no, he actually can use his brain. And that's cool. And, you know, as a parent, you would hope that that's the thing that you would impart upon your children. Like, that you're teaching them the right life lessons and they're inspired by you. Not just looking at you like, oh, y'all dope. Uh, I don't know. There's there's so much here. Wait, that sounds like you flipped over in your head from watching this movie as a scout to watching this movie as Atticus. I probably did. I mean, look, what I loved about this movie was the way that Atticus spoke to his kids, even though they called him Atticus, which I always have an issue with. I just don't know. I don't know. I know people do it. It's weird to me. I can't get over it. Your mom calls you Paul. Why can't your kids? I don't know. I feel like you want to have some sort of like, you know, it's like a safety net or something. I like a mom or a dad. I like being called mom and dad. Um, At the same time? Yes. (laughs) We're very open in our house. Um, No gender roles for us. Um, But I think what I really love about Atticus is he's not preachy. This movie is not preachy in any way. He's very hands-off, honestly. He's a little bit like, I'll see you at 10 p.m., my small children. But he's got a, you know, he's got a good nanny. And I love the choice that Atticus Finch, you only see him in three-piece suits. Like, I always assumed, again, because I haven't watched this movie in a long time, that they were not poor. I thought they were wealthy because the image of Gregory Peck is always in that suit. And it's such a character choice of this man trying to elevate himself and and elevate himself the right way, yeah. not uh, not the shortcut, not you know not take the easy way out. He's modeling a great life for his children. I think that is what I really responded to. Is like, wow, what a great parent. 
I love the Southern charm of this film, but I had to tell you, when I first started watching this, first impressions, I think Gregory Peck is incredibly miscast as a Southern gentleman. Really? Go on. I just felt like when I'm seeing him, he feels out of place to all the other characters in this town. And, and you know, and yes, he's elevating himself by the dress, but even the way he speaks, the manner in which he holds himself, he didn't feel like a Southern lawyer, you know, like he felt different just a little I can imagine whether it's like he came here he moved here from like Delaware exactly now that has nothing to do with his performance because as it goes on I fall in love with it but I was like oh that's an odd choice you know and, and I know that they wanted different people you know Rock Hudson was going to play Atticus Finch which was interesting but they wanted someone bigger and that was you know Gregory Peck and, and he's 6'3 he's it, huge he's an intimidating character and as I watched the movie I was like oh maybe they want him to stand out in in a few different ways from the people around him you know he has to almost get people's ire up because he doesn't fit in he doesn't fit in in any way yeah, I mean, like, there's an interesting bit when he has, like, the Ewells on stand, right? The Ewells who are the quote-unquote, like, lower class of mm-hmm. this town, not rich. Like, Mayella has to save up for a year to get seven nickels to send the kids out for ice yes. cream. And when they get on trial, they treat Atticus basically like he's a coastal elite, you know? Yeah. Both, both Mayella and her dad, her dad being, like, kind of the more villainous of the, of the ones. Her dad's full name, by the way, I don't know if it ever gets mentioned in the film, but it's Robert E. Lee. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Robert E. Lee Ewell. Um, they both pull on Atticus to like, well, you urban types don't understand like who we are, you know? They're so maybe there is a like, world in which he did come from like a Delaware or something like that. I don't know if that's yeah, in the Yeah, maybe book. just having a suit. Maybe it's just, maybe, I mean, there's classism in this movie. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting when you see Scout be classist. Like Scout does not like poor people. Like Scout mm-hmm. reacts to poor people like... Like a dog, like growls at like mailmen, you know. But yet, the older scout who is telling the story realizes that she is poor. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's like, and by the way, that voiceover in the film, we talk about voiceover a lot. You know, uh, Kim Stanley did the narration in the film, and she really did it as a favor. She was a successful stage actress who had worked with Horton Foote in the theater world, and she's like, "Yeah, I'll do this." And it's not overdone, but it gives you a perspective. You know, from the very wonder years, it it kind of just sets a little bit of groundwork because you're right. She's grown. Like, she probably is rebelling against poor because she is poor. But now as she's older, she doesn't see a shame in it. It's like that way of tearing across people who are just slightly poorer than you. Like, her mm-hmm. absolute horror. When the kid who's, like, slightly poorer than her pours syrup on his food. You know, this way of, yeah. like, he's doing it to get extra calories. That's sort of like how right. he's been trained, I think, to use syrup. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's what I was guessing. You know, I like thought it was kinda... just sort of like a low-class way. You just cover your food with yeah. whatever you can, yeah. It's probably yeah. also that, too. You're like, a, I don't know. I was going to say ranch dressing, but I love ranch dressing. I mean, come on, who doesn't? Uh, yeah. But you know, she's like aghast by that. She's sort of classist in her own way. Although I do want to say this about like the voiceover. Let's play a little bit of it. I can't really completely buy that young Scout would grow up to have this voice. <laughs> There just didn't seem to be anyone or anything Atticus couldn't explain. Though it wasn't a talent that would arouse the admiration of any of our friends, Gemini had to admit he was very good at that. But that was all he was good at. I mean, la-di-da. Like, really? (laughs) Well, maybe she's doing what uh, Gregory Peck did. You know, she's modeling her dad, like kind of elevating herself. You know, she's kind of training her voice to be a little bit more... 
Genteel. Refi- yeah, genteel or refined. Yeah. I do have a second thing I want to kind of call bullshit on. Yeah. And that is, well, it's from the speech that gives this movie its name. Well, I could shoot all of the Blue Jays I wanted if I could hit them. But to remember, it was a sin to kill a mockingbird. Why? Well, I reckon because mockingbirds don't do anything but make music for us to enjoy. Don't need people's gardens. Don't nest in the corn cribs. They don't do one thing but just sing their hearts out for us. Now, I want to call BS on that. Okay. Because... I grew up in Texas with a lot of mockingbirds, and okay. they are the worst. I mean, the worst bird is a swan, but oh the God. second worst bird. Are you going to play more animal noise clips? For yes, me? I am. All right. Because mockingbirds, I have a personal thing against them. Like, mockingbirds are mean to cats. They hate cats. They're always dive bombing cats. They're real mean. They're bullies. They would always beat up my cat when I was little. They would also. My dad was kind of balding. Okay. Uh, God rest his soul. And when he would go on a morning walk every day, there was this one mockingbird, and it would like dive bomb his bald head. Every day. And so I don't like mockingbirds, and this is what they really sound like. Not like, oh, so lovely, keep them around. This show is going to turn into just animal (laughs) noises nonstop. So, Amy, you were bumped again by the realistic noise of animals for arguably (laughs) the thematic uh, through line of this movie, which is like, don't do harm onto someone who does no harm to you. I mean, that's basically this this beautiful speech. Again, this movie doesn't hit you over the head with what they're trying to say. They're modeling behavior. They're letting the kids draw their own conclusions. I think this is the part of the film, you know, we're about 30 minutes into the film at this point where I really, like, I leaned in. I was like, oh, okay. I get what's going on here. And from that point forward totally in on this film. And again, it's my unfamiliarity with To Kill a Mockingbird because I read it, I took my test on it, I wrote my essay about it, and it's gone. It's out of my mind. I mean, I if you would have asked me before this movie started, what's the premise? I was like, well, I know there's a court scene and I know he defends someone who's wrongly accused and then the that's the end and then they all go off high-fiving. I did not realize there was like a whole, you know, basically back half of the film after the court case, which is... Again, one of the most important parts of the film as far as like framing society and 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 how heroic he was in that courtroom because what he put at stake, you know, it really it it adds a gravitas to the entire film. I think it's something that we don't often see. We you know, we see Jimmy Stewart, you know, at Mr. Smith goes to Washington like I'll do it and I'll stand here. Oh, your bill passed. Hooray. Credits. And this movie goes, "Well, now what's day 2?" And day three and day four. And and I felt right. like, Because wow. this is a community. This is a community. It's a small community. And, like, the sheriff who we're mad at when he takes the stand is the one who comes and helps out the family when, like, Jem gets attacked by yeah. Mr. Yule. You know, it. you can't escape these people of your town. You can do what you can to try to change their minds. And but they're still going to be there. And like, what I like about this film and, you know, again, we're we're – we're talking about race and getting into it and how different people get into it. And in the heat of the night does it in one way. I think what this film does for better or for worse, doesn't indicate that everyone in the town feels exactly the same way. And I like that about the movie. You know, it's like, yes, this could be a community that is very racist, but doesn't mean that everyone is racist. You know what I'm saying? And I, and, and that subtle distinction is, I think, 
what elevates this movie too, because you see some one-on-one interactions with people and, you know, or you see a face, the face of the judge when the verdict is read, like you, you see, you know, the whole interaction with the sheriff at the end of the film, like it's a complicated movie. It's, it's a very like weighty film that I think is really well handled and realistically handled. Yeah. I mean, the film, nobody has the line like, that jury is made up of entirely white men. Yes. But the camera takes it in and you just see. You know, you see that like there's only white people in every shot of Tom Robinson on the floor. And then all the other black people of the town are on the upper level. Mm-hmm. And you also see that like Jem and Scout are up there with Dill, not because they're even making a racial stand, but because the first adult they saw who knew that there was room up there was the Reverend. And right. the Reverend is black and the Reverend took them with him. But Yeah, and when you point out the judge, like I feel like in my heart that judge did not like that verdict. I agree. And yet, like, it's kind of the way he walks out a little tough, the way the door, I think, slams a little loud. You know what's not being spoken about in this town. Well, and I also think the way the camera captures the audience of the court case. And, like, you're watching the reactions of people. And I think it's actually really wonderfully directed because it's – a conflicted bunch of faces. Not everyone in there is like, yes. Not everyone in there is like, no. No one's like fist pumping. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, if we're going to break down this this giant section in the middle, this court case, which is, I think, what I thought this whole movie was, um, how wonderful is it in the, A, and how succinct it is. Like, they run a whole court case. You feel like it's like almost the best cliff-noted version. Every screenwriter who's going to write a scene in court should watch. This should be required watching because the skill in which it's written and the brevity and and you just cut through everything. It's like the best Law & Order episode that you've ever seen. Yeah. And it's not sensationalized. And, you know, you have this – he does some – movie lawyer-esque things in very grounded, realistic ways. I'm blown away by the way that this court case was done. Yeah, I mean, everybody gets on the stand for like 30 seconds, Mm -hmm. you know, but they just sort of get in, say their thing and get out. I mean, I guess this is, it almost feels like it plays in real time. Yeah. Which is why it makes sense that like before this scene starts, the last thing you see on the outside world is like, a man selling ice, just leave his bucket of ice on the stairs and run inside because he's like, I'll be out. Right. Won't, won't take long. Just give me a minute over here. <laughs> okay, guys. It is now officially summer. I've been planning a lot of trips. And if you've been planning trips and you're like, oh, man, I want to have the best trip ever, let me tell you about a new site that is going to change the way that you travel. It's called Turo. That's T-U-R-O. Here's what Turo is. You know how traveling got like totally electrified a few years ago when you were able to arrive in a new town and like rent somebody's house. This is like that, but with cars. It's a peer-to-peer car sharing marketplace that's available in over 5,000 cities. I mean, everywhere. We're talking the US, Canada, UK, Germany. There are 9 million users already on Turo right now. And those 9 million users have over 850 types of unique cars for any kind of mood that you're in. Are you feeling like you want to land and go with like an SUV? Are you a convertible person? Are you looking for a truck? Are you in your own hometown and you're like, oh, I want a nice car for the weekend? I want to like go on a really, really ridiculous fun birthday date or something like that. That is what Turo can do. This is like kind of a revolution in a way of getting around in cities without needing to go through like a rental car agency. Although Turo does have insurance options that are available for every single trip. So you're safe and protected, but also operating on your own network. So if you want to check out what Turo is, 
What I recommend you do right now is you download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or Google Play, or you can visit Turo.com, and you can scope it out. Sign up, become a Turo member, and you can get $25 off your first trip when you sign up right now with the promo code UNSPOOLED at checkout. That's $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Turo with the promo code UNSPOOLED. So get your wheels on the road and have the summer of your dreams. So back in the early, early prehistoric dawn of podcasts, we are talking all the way back in the year 2006, Jimmy Pardo launched Never Not Funny. It was this true pioneer in the world of comedy podcasts, long form, talking, people just hanging out, everybody stopping by. We're talking like Tignataro, Kumail Nanjiani, Patton Oswalt. This was ground zero in shaping the way that podcasts are today. And you know what? Now, Jimmy Pardo is doing his own new revolution because he launched a game show called Playing Games with Jimmy Pardo. We're talking three calling contestants battling head-to-head for the right to impress Jimmy Pardo, who knows literally everything and literally everyone and literally everybody on the planet. For example, this week, his co-host is Jamil Jamil from The Good Place, who I absolutely adore to pieces. And in the future, he's going to have awesome guests like John Hamm, Sarah Silverman, all playing pop culture games are just like half an hour, pop in and out in your earbuds, play along, scream answers, scream when people don't don't get the answer. I totally identify with that emotion very, very strongly. So if you want to spend your summer yelling answers at people on podcasts with your friends, which is probably the reason why I watch old game shows myself, which is a little bit mental, but it is super, super fun. Make sure to look up Never Not Funny, his original show in your podcast app, and you will see as you subscribe all the new episodes of Playing Games with Jimmy Pardo in that same feed. So you can get a little bit of your chat on, you can get a little bit of your game show on, and you can just have a ton of fun. Enjoy. Atticus's cross-examining of the witness, I was also thinking of In the Heat of the Night a lot, you know, because you have this character of Mayella, mm-hmm. uh, who looks kind of like Ali Sheedy after she gets made over in The Breakfast yes! Club. Yes! Oh, I love that. <laughs> it is weird that we now have two films set in the South of white women accusing people of rape who are lying. Mm-hmm. Um, let's listen to Mayella lie. He caught me. He choked me. And he took advantage of me, is that right? Do you remember him beating you about the face? No. I don't... recollect if he hit me. I mean, yes, he hit me. He hit me. I mean, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy, like the AFI list is like purposely thinking that all women lie about rape, but we are like zero for two now. Or yeah. would that be two for two? I don't even know. It, it no, feels it'd like be, a zero it'd, it'd to me. It would be two for two, yeah. Two for two. Um, I have nothing to add to this because I feel like I don't have the words to necessarily uh, break it down any more simply than I think we're talking about, you know, a, a culture where it doesn't matter what the act is ultimately. And that's what I kind of took from this film. You know, we're in a time right now where young African-American men are being shot and their accusers are being let off the hook. I think the United States lives constantly in a time where people are falsely accused. People don't get justice that they deserve. And I was kind of looking at the film from that perspective. And you're right. Like, Two films on the list showing women lying about being raped is not a good look. But I also feel like what this movie is really intending to do is shine a light on how racist people could be in the sense that 
well, just because they are black, they will have been guilty. Yeah, and kind of on that modern eye look, I mean, many years have gone by since I'd seen this, since I was young. And many, 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 many more people have died unfairly Mm -hmm. at the hands of police. And so I never questioned before that scene where the sheriff is like, oh, yeah, Tom just took off running and they yelled at him to stop and he didn't stop and they tried to wound him and they didn't mean to kill him, but they did. I'd never questioned that before as being, you know, a lie. Right. And in this watch, I was like, oh, they could just straight up be lying about that. They could have just taken him out and shot him. I think what makes Mayella slightly more sympathetic or what I like about that character, that portrayal, is that she's in an abusive relationship. This, you know, her father is beating her. Her father is threatening her to do this. It's not her instinct to do this. Like, this is not, you know, we don't have a woman going, I just want to screw over this guy. Like, she, there's no other option for her. No, she really, you get the sense, she really likes Tom. She has no respect for the fact that he's married. No. And no respect for the fact that he doesn't like her. Oh, she's not right either. I mean, she's not right in the head at all. No, not at all. But she genuinely has a crush on her. Like, she saved up for a year to get the nickels to send kids away so she could make her move on a guy she had a crush on. Right. And she never kissed a guy before, as, as Tom says here. Mr. Finch. I got Tom off the chair, and I turned around. <laughs> she sort of jumped on me. She hugged me around the waist. She reached up and kissed me on the face. She said she'd never kissed a grown man before, and she might as well kiss me. She says for me to kiss her back. I said, Miss Mayella, let me out of here. And I tried to run. Mr. Ewell cussed at her from the window. He said he's going to kill her. You know, that's so interesting to have a scene in a movie where a man, he seems emotionally affected by what was an assault to him. I mean, he he was raped. Yeah, he talks about that in a way that Benjamin Braddock does not talk about it. Right. You know, like that it's a different well, thing. And here. that's what I think is kind of interesting too. You're you're kind of hearing about an assault. And I think you can look at this movie and change the genders, you can change the perspective. And it's and that's what I think kind of gives it its lasting legacy in many respects because you see him struggle with it. Like he's not embarrassed, but it's so hard for him to tell the story to look him in the eye this is you know brock peters who i think is fantastic in this movie you know he began to cry during the you know that scene immediately no rehearsal gregory peck said i couldn't even look him in the eye without choking up it's you feel the emotion that that feels so incredibly real to me yeah it feels a little bit to me like he wants to not protect her exactly but he's aware of what's what he's saying means for everybody in that room and like when he says he felt sorry for her you get that ripple and like that is the moment in a way that feels like really does condemn him they're mad that he feels sorry for her right how dare he how dare he feel sorry for her right yeah like i think gregory peck would call brock crybaby Mm. (laughs) on the set oh really all the time yeah i mean but they kept being i mean like brock he delivered the eulogy at gregory peck's i read that and i thought that was so interesting it's like so Maybe he just wanted someone to make sure to cry at his own uh, funeral. 
Is he? Uh, I know this guy. I think actually uh, Brock Peters ended up singing Duke Ellington to him, which is really lovely. Oh, wow. And which also ties into To Lighten the Mood for two seconds. You've heard Brock Peters sing before. Have I? Yes, you have. This is not Brock Peters in the main voice, but he is in the background. Stop banana till the morning come. Wow, that's Brock Peters. Brock Peters is one of the daylight come and we want to go home people in the back of Harry Belafonte's Banana Boat song. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, he worked a long time after this role where I recognized him, and this is probably the saddest thing for me. Because <laughs> I recognize him from Star Trek. I knew you were gonna say Star Trek. I was so I was like, oh my gosh, that guy. <laughs> um, you know, uh Fleet Admiral Cartwright. Um, I was so excited. I just his face is burned in my my memory. But I want to go back for a second. As complicated as her character is, I just want to like put on a pedestal how great Colin Wilcox is, who plays Mayella. I mean that performance. Everything that's going on in that courtroom, magic is happening there. Like first of all, just so you know, that courtroom is literally created as an. A duplicate of the real courtroom from Harper Lee's childhood home. No one would know this, but it was based on photos and measurements that they had taken when they visited Monroeville, which I I don't know if that imbued the set with something, but it feels like every single person, even the background performers, are bringing their A game in a way. You feel the heat, you see the sweat, you yeah, you see the sweat, you see the sweat on Brock before the trial even starts, and it and I think. There's people that are hot from heat, and he's hot from nerves. Uh, Colin Wilcox, she delivers this tour de force performance. You, there's so much in this movie that's happening that is not said. Yeah, the way she's nodding is like amazing. Actually, you and you're right. I had actually a hard time pulling clips for this because a lot of what is so emotional here is not said. It's a, it's a little bit silent, but the way she just nods. When she is sort of lying but trying to be emphatic, like a good girl. Yeah. It's a good girl childish nod. You almost you that nod alone, I think, tells you that her dad is the person making her do this. Yes. You see her being controlled, you see her and when she strikes out at the end and she gives you that like, you know, I just want everyone to know. Like it it she's just trying to appease her dad, who is this I always judge how much I like a performance by how much anger I get at a character. And I mean the most hated character for me you know, is our as our friend Robert E. Lee uh, Yule, uh, James Anderson. He is such an intimidating mess, abusive alcoholic, and he plays it in a way that I think, from I can only tell from my own personal experiences, felt so grounded and real and scary. And to kids, how scary. Like, you don't know. You feel like, will this man kill me? He could, like, just hanging outside the window. And he, again, he does chase after these kids. Apparently, whether or not it was method, we won't know. But he was uh, really dicky to the kids on the set and to everyone. He was a real asshole. But I, it may have been just method acting. You know, no, yeah, yeah I don't. And know. I love that physical moment when he gets up on the stand. He gives his lying testimony to the prosecution. Mm-hmm. And then he almost acts like his job is done. He gets off the yeah. stand 
and just starts to walk back to his seat. And Atticus just stands there and lets him bump into him to I remind him his job is not done. He has to get back up there. And Atticus has a turn now. Like that's one of those little physical beats. It's probably besides shooting a dog, it's like the most physically aggressive thing that Atticus does. And yet it's just a man standing his ground, which is, again, this whole movie is just standing up for what is right and doing the proper thing, even mm. though it's hard in the moment. Like, even though everyone in the courtroom is laughing at him. Yeah. Although, Paul, I mean, we're both left-handed. I know. And this is a left-handed villain. I felt a little bit like, oh, man. Well, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, it's a dual-handed villain. Uh <laughs> I want to talk about this speech that Gregory Peck gives, a nine-minute summation speech. I'm kicking myself that I didn't see it on Broadway, by the way. I know I've mentioned it in the beginning. Yeah. Although it did not get any Tony nominations, and our buddy Beetlejuice did. I know. Our buddy Beetlejuice doing really good. Anthony King, congratulations. Um, I don't know how Jeff Daniels is doing it. Oh, Part wow. of me, I can't even picture that. I'm sorry. I know he's a good actor, and no, my brain was like... <laughs> part of me feels like he might be delivering it more like a Sorkin thing. Yeah. Only because that's what I've recently seen him in. He can deliver. He can deliver a monologue like un, unlike anybody else. But I think there's a simplicity to this nine minute summation that happens in the film that he did on one take, which I think also adds to the the way it's performed. It's not overacted. It's not overwrought. It's not. You know, I think what this film does great is it shows you a trial and now we've seen all the tropes of that and we've seen the photocopies out of that and we've seen the bigger performances and we've seen the grander, ha-ha, you used your left hand, you know. And meanwhile, you know, we don't know that Tom's left arm doesn't work. So we're kind of like the jury. And I think that's what's, again, great about this film. Or we're like the kids. We are the kids. The kids don't know. that You know, he's not working on this summation with the kids and going, oh, what do you think about this? And so I do love that revelation. Like you're watching a trial and you very rarely see that in TV or film. We know where they're going. We're like, yeah, yeah, get him to write with his left hand. We don't know where it's all adding up to. And that summation, you know, calls into question, I think, something that is, like we said, everything in this movie is of the now. And the specifics are different, but the the intent is the same. Yeah, I mean, I clipped a little bit of that, of his summation because I want to ask your opinion on this, which mm -hmm. is when Atticus is in this clip and he's going to talk about what he thinks the court should be doing, do you think he's describing the way he really believes they are or do you think he's describing the way he wants them to be? Like, is he being true or is he being idealistic? Amy, is I he have naive a very strong point about this. I'm going to wait till after the clip. Okay. Now, gentlemen, in this country, our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and of our jury system. That's no ideal to me. That is a living, working reality. Now, I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence that you have heard come to a decision and restore this man to his family in the name of god do your duty i think what's happening 
here. I want to hear what you're going to say as well, but I think what's happening here is a variation of the clip that we played earlier where he's talking to the the old crazy lady. Like he knows how to speak to his audience. I think by invoking God, mm. he is the way that you will even try to and he's like, "I'm a God-fearing man." Yeah. I think he's saying I'm 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 trying to hit you down the middle here. I'm not, you know, like he doesn't mention race. He doesn't say anyone's lying. He is presenting very black and white facts in a way without specifics, if that makes sense. Like, can we agree that the world is round? Okay, if we all agree the world is round, then this has to also be true. You know, I feel like it's like playing to the audience. And especially when you hear that God thing, I feel like he's like, that's what he's appealing to. Do what God would do. Yeah, I think the same thing. I mean... Some people in the modern era, and I can I can get this, they say that his flaw as a character is he's too good. He's just too perfect. He's mm. too smart. He's too wise. He's too loving. Which, you know, the, I don't know. I barely understand what a Mary Sue is, but he's like, is he like a, a Mary Sue of perfection? I don't think I'm understanding what a Mary Sue well, is no, at all. Amy, when I say the, the thing about a Mary Sue is men can never be them because when men are totally cool, it's awesome. And when women are totally cool, it's a little bit uh, ridiculous. Uh, all right. I mean, where did she learn how to fight like that? Uh, I need to see it. Okay, fine. Is Gregory Peck a zaddy? yeah i think he is the definition of that don't you feel like i mean but no i don't know i don't think he's a zaddy because he isn't holding that over anybody he doesn't like he's not saying i want you to prove of me he's just doing right for his kids like and he's he's, just a man crush monday i mean yeah. yeah look i don't think he is overly good i think what he does is hold himself to a standard i don't feel like he's like oh yeah I get to defend Tom Robinson. Like, it feels put upon him. And when he gets that information, you see him like, mm-hmm. He's not psyched about that. He's not excited to kill that dog. He doesn't want to pull the gun. He's the guy, though, that will do the job the right way. And I, and, and maybe it is cliche, but I feel like he's not volunteering. If he was volunteering to take the case, if he was volunteering to kill the dog, if he was, you know, the guy who got up in, you know, Robert E. Ewell, you know, like got in his face, like, God damn it, you don't do this. Like, he doesn't do anything like that. He's not showy. I mean, and, I think that's what makes it so interesting that he is our voted by the AFI, yeah. our number one hero. Who because, else is on that list? Yeah, well, our number two and our number three, are, I think, are more classic. It, number two is Indiana Jones. Number three is James Bond. Wow. I mean, you put Atticus Well, Finch, those are like legitimate heroes. This is like, like a, saving girls. Yeah. In a way, Atticus doesn't get to save anybody. No, I mean, look, the one, one of the reasons why no one wanted to make this book into a movie uh, is it, la- you know, it lacked action. It didn't have a love story. There's a villain who doesn't get its comeuppance. It's, this is not movie material. This is, this is novel material. I mean, Harper uh, was happy to get the film made, did not want to be... Uh, a part of writing it. it was like, nope, just let it go. And, and you know, Horton Foote yeah. did an amazing job of kind of compacting the book. But this It's interesting. Is- like, also, Thomas Harris, who wrote Silence of the Lambs, he didn't want to watch the movie for 10 years either. There's, like, these novelists who just sort of let it go. Yeah. I mean, in Harris's case, he was he said he was worried if he saw the movie that Hopkins's Hannibal would be his Hannibal and he'd never be able to write the character again. Yeah, I think that there's some truth to that. Like, let someone else now interpret what you've done. Like you've made something great. Like just don't make another version of it. You know, it's like, 
And and will it be the same? No. And I think that's what's kind of lovely about it. It's sort of like J.K. Rowling didn't write the Harry Potter books. Somebody else is going to bring in their expertise. She's great at writing novels. Someone else is great at writing screenplays. They don't just translate, you know. Uh, be there to offer advice. It's the same reason why George R. R. Martin is writing. Be there writing... to say like, who's secretly into rubber or whatever J.K. Rowling is doing. Now. <laughs> <laughs> who's banging who in the magical broom closet? Um, I mean, this love for Atticus. A, I really, really get it, and B, I, that definitely explains why people were so angry at Ghost at a Watchman. I mean, like in Ghost at a Watchman, like Atticus says things like, "Yeah, talk to me about this," because I don't know all the the details of Ghost at a Watchman. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of prequel, sort of sequel. It's like it is Atticus when he's older, but it was also written before Harper Lee wrote this. Okay. You know, and it's yeah, because just... Harper Lee kind of wrote this, and then oh, that's not the story I want to tell. This is the story. I yeah, tell. and it's kind of an Atticus with maybe even more dimension than here. You know, mm-hmm. Atticus still does the trial. It's, it's still basically the bones of this. But this Atticus, he's a little bit racist in Ghost Out of Watchmen. Like, he's been to a clan meeting before. And when he's talking to his daughter, he says things like, and here I'm quoting the book. He says, the Negroes down here are still in their childhood as a people, mm-hmm. is what this Atticus says. And he also asks Scout at one point, quote, do you want Negroes by the carload in our schools and churches and theaters? Do you want them in our world? And it's, I mean, basically that's like if you took Harry Potter and said he was actually Adolf Hitler, you know, that is the way people just reacted right. to that. Yeah. I mean, what we're not acknowledging here about that book is, was it ever really meant to be seen? Like clearly that book was written first and then it was refined. Like there's a lot of first drafts that I write, not that my, my characters are racist, but first drafts are first drafts for a reason. You know, it's like George Lucas, when he came up with Star Wars, you know, kind of developed this whole idea and like, oh no, no, this is where the story that I want to tell starts. I want it to start here, not here. Maybe this is a good time to talk to our guest. I want to welcome our next guest. His name is Wayne Flint, and it is really special to get a chance to talk to him because not only is he a historian of the South, he's written books specializing mostly in Alabama and in religion, books like Poor But Proud, Alabama's Poor Whites. He is also a person of the generation of the 60s who read this book, was very politicized by it, and then also is a friend of Harper Lee, which is not a thing that many people can claim, but he and Harper Lee became very, very close. He actually wound up publishing a book called Mockingbird Songs, which is a book of letters that he and Harper wrote back to each other, back and forth, back and forth, although she would sign them Love Nell, which is a thing I feel like I'm not allowed to say. Uh, So let's talk to Wayne about a woman who's very intriguing, Harper Lee. Well, so Wayne, you read To Kill a Mockingbird in the 60s at a time when you yourself had a complicated relationship with the South. I'd love to hear about that. In the the early part of the 1960s, I was in graduate school at Florida State University. Uh, I had been chairman of College Youth for Nixon Lodge in 1960, and so I was big into politics, the first Republican in my family. And uh, then all of a sudden, the race stuff uh, began to uh, intrude uh, into politics. I organized a group called Republicans for Lyndon Baines Johnson because of Barry Goldwater's uh, uh, racial views. And capping it off was the 16th Street bombing in 1963 and the death of the uh, four little girls there. And so I remember going home and telling my wife that I would never go back to um, Alabama to teach after I received my Ph.D. Then uh, within uh, weeks after that, uh, I began to read To Kill a Mockingbird, this uh, incredibly uh, 
well-publicized and award-winning novel, which I had not been able to read because I was working on my doctoral program when it was published. And I can truthfully say it, it transformed my life. For one thing, it brought me back to Alabama because I thought if someone from Monroeville, Alabama, <laughs> could write a book as sensitive to matters of race and family and religion as that book does, uh, it touched all the nerves in my psyche. To me, what's so striking about this book itself is this book almost feels like mandatory, and the, the movie almost feels mandatory for pretty much every kid I've ever met. And yet, does it feel like the lessons have sunk in in all that time? Have we gotten better? Oh, I, I would say that uh, To Kill a Mockingbird has very possibly had more effect on American morality ethics and race relations than the Bible has. Uh, the Bible is for many believers in America obviously a throwaway book. They cite it when uh, it confirms whatever prior opinions you had. But I'm not sure the Bible challenges those opinions as completely as To Kill a Mockingbird challenged the opinions of America on race tolerance. Uh, non-judgmentalism. Uh, in fact, many people who read the Bible use it as a source of judgmentalism, whereas Nell's reading of the Bible was non-judgmentalism. And I would argue that that moral uh, compass that she has in the book has had a far more profound effect on the typical kids between the ages of, say, 14 and 20. Uh, my 14-year-old granddaughter in Seattle is reading it this year. Her brother read it. And I would say that they learned more from the novel than they learned from the Bible, which they read. You know, I'm curious. I mean, the, the image of Harper Lee is that she's so famously antisocial, but she liked you and you were friends. And how did you pull that off? And I'm still not sure why that happened. Uh, we began to visit her sister, whom I had met when I had talked about uh, to a group of Methodist women in which she was deeply involved on the Bible and poverty and social justice. And we developed a friendship with the two sisters, with Alice, the older sister, and with uh, Louise Connor, uh, the uh, middle sister. And I can't really say that I particularly liked Harper Lee because I really didn't know Harper Lee at that point. I just know her, knew her by reputation and by novel. But uh, after 2000, she began to have problems with dementia. And then uh, Harper Lee began to write us asking about uh, her sister, asking if we could tell if her memory was, was slipping, and obviously very concerned about her welfare. Uh, so uh, from the time that she had her stroke uh, in 2006 until the uh, time she died in 2016, she went to assisted living at Help uh, South in Birmingham uh, for six months to try to uh, rehab her body. And during that period of time, we really became friends. We would take her out when she was strong enough and her rehab had gone well enough. We would take her out to eat. Uh, we would talk about everything Alabama. Uh, and we uh, developed a really close friendship uh, from that time in 2007 until she died uh, in 2016. Uh, we met with her 64 times. 
uh, I did write in my journal uh, about 240 pages of journal entries uh, about each of the sessions we had with her, about people she talked about, about uh, discussions about Alabama history, about Monroe, about Monroe County, about uh, civil rights, about justice, about politicians and their wives. And so uh, it became a kind of compendium of, uh, of anecdotes by Nell. I mean, Harper didn't even like her biographies, right? That's correct. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if you think about the movie, uh, the movie is the same as the book in that the way in which it speaks to the heart and minds and spirits of ordinary people is quite different from the way it is understood by literary critics. And I've never quite understood that because, I, I, you know, I, not being a literary scholar, I couldn't speak to what criteria they imply or impose. But to my way of thinking, the most important uh, consideration in a piece of fiction is, number one, whether it can transcend its own time and speak uh, as powerfully to one generation as it does one 50 years after that. And the fact that almost every 14-year-old in America is forced to read it in literature is a statement of how English teachers understand it. And the fact that uh, they teach it, at least partly, they tell me, because it is the one novel when kids actually uh, become characters, when they think about, this is me, this could be me, this could be me misunderstood by everybody, this could be me bullied by everybody, they resonate to that part of the novel that talks about don't judge another person until you get inside their skin and walk around in their shoes. So it has a kind of moral transcendence to it that speaks profoundly across generational lines. And my favorite story uh, is one that actually uh, I picked up last year when I was lecturing on on, uh, Mockingbird songs in a book tour at the University of Georgia. And there was uh, a young young man there uh, from Bulgaria, and uh, he uh, came up after I spoke uh, and said, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the way I processed the movie, I was in Bulgaria when it was still under Soviet control. And the Soviet officials uh, basically compelled everybody to go see the movie. He said the commissar, the political leader for the town, after the movie was over, uh, lectured them on the fact that what they had just seen was a classic example of the hypocrisy and injustice in the American legal system, because a poor black man uh, was murdered, uh, legally lynched, uh, because uh, he was black. And the failure of the justice system to mete out justice to him was an example of why Bulgarians ought to like the Soviet Union (laughs) and not America. But the uh, uh, the person who was talking to me, uh, Kiram, K-I-R-I-N, uh, said, uh, that's not the way we processed it at all, that after the commissar, uh, the political leader, had, had the cadre leader had talked to us, and what we decided is exactly the opposite. Pernia and the children and the sheriff and the judge and Miss Maudie and all these other characters in the book recognized the injustice of what was happening. And he said uh, the fact that American justice was imperfect 
was less important to us than the fact that here is this marvelous man, Atticus Finch, who is speaking about the inadequacies of American justice and begging America to do better. He said if someone had tried to do that in Bulgaria, they would have been imprisoned or they would have been killed. And I thought, wow, that is some kind of commentary upon the power of a movie. Speaking of movies, I mean, both Catherine Keener and Sandra Bullock have played Harper Lee on film. And do you feel like they captured her? Uh, yeah, I, I, funny, uh, funny you should say that because uh, she loved both performances. They actually sent the uh, uh, the movie to her at first, and she said the only thing she really told them was that in one of the scenes in the original uh, mo- the original cut of the movie, uh, that they had her in bobby socks. Of course, it was in the 60s. And she said, Wayne, I never wore bobby socks in my entire life. And I told them to get those bobby socks off, which they, in fact, did. And she also said that uh, the the kind of, of, of poetic license that they were taking with the movie at times really uh, bothered her. Uh, of course, you know about the... Uh, legendary split with Truman Capote after he did not win the Pulitzer or the National Book Award in 1965. And as she repeatedly told us, she said, I did not push Truman Capote away from me after I won the Pulitzer Prize, and he did not. He pushed me away from him because uh, he couldn't deal with the fact that I had won two prizes, which he coveted so much, and he did not. And then he basically of course, dumped Jack Dumphy, his partner, uh, lifelong partner after World War II, and began, became promiscuous again and, and began to use drugs and, and abuse alcohol and abuse his friends. And she said the reason that we separated was simply because uh, I did not want to watch Truman destroy himself. And that's the reason Jack Dumphy left him as well, is because Jack Dumphy did not want to see him destroy himself. You, there was this image of her from afar in the last few years when Ghost at a Watchman was published that she was being taken advantage of by people in her life. W- was that true? No, not that I know. Uh, uh, I know that her um, uh, the, the stories are that um, her, her lawyer was manipulating her, her agent was manipulating her because they were going to make a lot of money off the book. Uh, uh, there were even conspiracy theories about uh, the book had been discovered earlier and put aside until after Alice Lee died, because Alice Lee would have been more sympathetic to whatever uh, Nell wanted to do with it. I do know that her her uh, grandson, Hank Connor, uh, who was a good friend of mine, and uh, Hank was with her just before its publication, and he bugged her. Uh, four times over two days, he told us, uh, not to allow the book to be published. He, she said, it won't do your your worldwide literary reputation any good. One possible explanation is that she was a child of the Depression, and her family, like most families in a small town of 1,355 people that didn't have a single paved street and not much legal business, and they they were hard up just like everyone else was hard up. And that she has a a riveting memory of what life was like. In 1936, she would have been uh, 10 years old. The result was that if you say, well, 
HarperCollins is going to do the largest print run in the history of any American novel other than, well, J.K. Rollins, which is really not a, I wouldn't call that an adult uh, series anyway, but certainly uh, any adult novel uh, that had ever been published, uh, something like two and a half million uh, copies in that first printing. <laughs> if you part zero, 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 zeros after that, uh, in terms of what she was going to realize, I'm sure that for a, a woman of the Depression, that would have been something of importance. Also, and fairly importantly, she told us uh, 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 that she didn't even remember the novel in terms of the details. She realized that part of it had been adapted to To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, she understood that the characters were the same, but but she did not reread the novel. So she had not read that novel since 1957. And when presented with the option of allowing it to be published, uh, maybe if she had been able to read it, but of course she had macular degeneration, she was profoundly deaf at the time, I'm not sure that uh, she would have changed her mind about publication. I'm not sure that she would have agreed to publication if she had read it again, because she might have said, well, that was, that was such an amateurish piece of work. Actually, I found it, in many ways, a far more believable depiction of her father than um, than To Kill a Mockingbird. That's so fascinating. Well, Wayne, I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your day to talk to us. I'm glad to do it. Absolutely. Take care over there. Lovely chatting with you. So if you have been listening to every Unspooled episode this month, you learned an awesome fun fact, which is this. In one year, the average American eats 46 slices of pizza. That's basically one a week, which I think you can double. I think, I mean, 46, I think we can do a lot, lot better than that because there is a new awesome invention that is going to help you make the best pizzas of your life in your own backyard. Just as easy as if you're like getting the grill on, heating up a burger, you could make a pizza in that same amount of time and everybody's going to be like, oh my God, how did you do that? Here's how. You're going to get this device called the Uni. Here's what an Uni is. It's this little kind of dome-shaped awesome portable grill that heats up to 932 degrees. 932. And there is a reason why it gets that hot. It's because the secret to making awesome pizza is when you get like this crispy outer crust, but this chewy inner crust. You just like get it in and you get it out and you devour your perfect restaurant quality pizza. The Uni, which is two O's by the way, O-O-N-I, it comes in three distinct models. There's the Coda, there's the Uni 3, and there's the Uni Pro. And they are amazing for everything. You can also cook your steaks in there. You can sear your vegetables in there. This is a way of like taking your kitchen into your yard and just having like amazing meals. It's stylish. It's portable. You can like pack it up, take it to a friend's house. You can be like, oh, yeah, I'll bring pizza. And they'll be like, oh, you're delivering it? And you'll be like, no, I'm going to make pizza in your backyard. Check this out. It's amazing. And your friends will be like, oh, my God. So if you want to start being the most delicious person on your block right now, you're going to go to uni.com, that's O-O-N-I.com, and enter the code UNSPOOLED for 10% off your purchase. That's uni.com, O-O-N-I.com, to get your Unicoda, your Uni3, your Uni Pro. Some models work with gas if you're into gas. Some models work with wood if that's more your speed. Anything you want, they got the pizza type that you're going to enjoy. So go to uni.com, enter Unspooled at checkout, get 10% off your purchase, make something delicious, and you also get fast free shipping on all orders over $100. Uni.com, O-O-N-I.com, promo code Unspooled. We're back, and we, you know, we've been talking about Atticus, the different Atticuses, we've been talking about everything. I mean, let's talk a little bit about Gregory Peck, because mm-hmm. 
people who know Gregory Peck said that Atticus Finch was the closest they'd ever seen to him on screen. Interesting. Which is a huge compliment. But Gregory Peck, he kind of lives up to that. I mean, he's a guy who, you know, thought he wanted to go into like a professional school. He quit school a little bit early when he got bitten by this acting bug. He goes to New York where he's homeless uh, for a while, living in his car, trying to get acting work. And then when World War II starts, he can't go to war because he's really hurt his back in a dancing class. He studied with Martha Graham, like the famous dancer. He hurt his back. He was exempt from military service. They wouldn't let him go. So suddenly he's like in high demand as a movie star because he's one of the only young, handsome, talented men who's not fighting. He really was a guy in real life who tried to live by an ethical code. He was a person who fought against HUAC. He believed in that very strongly. He was very liberal. He took this role in part because – He was at a moment where he had five kids and he was like, I need to stop being so career obsessed. I need to be a better man. I want to play this good father. I want to be this good man, which is why he wound up, honestly, like, I think becoming very close to in a parallel universe, being like the Ronald Reagan of the Liberal Party. Like in the 1970s, they tried to get him to run against Reagan for governor. Wow. Yeah. And he said no. Um, But imagine this world where he would have done that. Like Nixon had him on his enemies list. You know, and I think because of the synergy of who he was as a person and because of this role, which he never, ever, 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 ever shook off. He became Atticus for the rest of his life. He was able to do stuff like check out this ad, this political ad that he filmed in the 80s. During a tense moment in the country that we know very, very, very well now, the possible confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. This is Gregory Peck. Robert Bork wants to be a Supreme Court justice. But the record shows that he has a strange idea of what justice is. He defended poll taxes and literacy tests, which kept many Americans from voting. He opposed the civil rights law that ended whites-only signs at lunch counters. He doesn't believe the Constitution protects your right to privacy. And he thinks that freedom of speech does not apply to literature and art and music. Robert Bork could have the last word on your rights as citizens. But the Senate has the last word on him. Please urge your senators to vote against the Bork nomination, because if Robert Bork wins a seat on the Supreme Court, it will be for life, his life and yours. Robert Bork lost. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that my kind of first introduction to Gregory Peck was through kind of like March of Dimes ads or, you know, I I may be uh, messing up my charities, but things like this. He was a PSA king. And, you know, when they offered him this, this movie he read the book in one sitting and was like i'm in let's do this and and you know and you and you can't help but bring a little bit of yourself like you're filtering a character through yourself I, you know probably the only person that doesn't really apply to is somebody like daniel day lewis like there's a great quote um and i wanted to talk about it in chinatown where jack nicholson said let the clothes do the acting you just say the lines you know, I think that there's a the fact that he is a good man, the fact that he does believe this, I think it grounds this movie. You feel like the way he interacts with the kids, like you can feel that he is a father. You can feel that he is comfortable with kids, but also, you know, he's not perfect. He's not perfect. I I think what people probably have an issue with is that we don't want to hold ourselves to that kind of a high standard. So we have to go like, oh, he's too good. You know, but the truth is, is like, we should all be like that. I'm not like that. I'd like to be like that. Ideally, sure. I think you're pretty close. Well, you're very nice to say it. Uh, but what you're yeah. saying, I mean, Pakula, who like produced this film, like his big quote is that he thinks 75% of directing is casting. And he thinks that number 
is being conservative. Yeah. But you like really see it in here. I mean, it's this is like such a well cast movie. Do you know the name of the casting agent, by the way? Who? Her name is Bodie Boatwright. Oh, wow. I love that name. <laughs> Which set me down this like whole tailspin of being like, what happened to that boat? Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> and um, Bodie McBoatface, uh, well, Bodie, technically Bodie McBoatface was renamed the David Attenborough, but then they made like a sub that they also named Bodie McBoatface as like an apology for renaming Bodie McBoatface. Anyway, Bodie McBoatface. The submarine and the ship are in Antarctica, and they're helping to research I'm... what will happen when all of our ice caps melt. Oh, well, that's – So a, they are saving the planet. A high and a low. Um, but Bodie Boatwright yeah. <laughs> uh, spent forever, of course, casting his – I mean, every movie with kids, it's always the story of like, they spent forever. They interviewed a million yeah. kids. She did. She interviewed a million kids. And when she found Badham and she found Alfred, who plays um, Jem – Turned out they lived like right around the corner from each other in the same small town. I love that. And by the way, they didn't get along while they were shooting the film. Uh, well, he's a boy and boys are stinky. Oh, come on. But ah. they, Mary apparently was the one who was torturing Philip, who played Jem. Like she would just kind of like try to throw him off his game off camera, uh, which is hilarious. And she was only 10 years old on Oscar night when she was up for Best Supporting Actress at the time. And she's still the second youngest nominee ever. Because Tatum O'Neill, I think, is now the youngest, right? They're like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, my favorite casting story is like when Bodie was interviewing Mary, mm-hmm. she was like, you're really small for nine. You know, because she's not looking yeah. for a nine-year-old. She's looking for a six-year-old. She's like, you're small for nine. And uh, Mary goes, well, if you drank as much coffee and smoked as many corn silks as I do, you'd be small too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mary was a real uh, card on set. Like, you know, she loved being on the set so much that uh, when it was her last day, she kept on messing up her lines to keep them there longer. Like her mom had to finally come in and be like, it doesn't work like that. You just can't stay in the movie forever. But I love that like kind of sweet moment. You know, to that note of like, is Atticus as good as we think he is? Mm-hmm. Do you think at the very end when Atticus is on the porch with the sheriff – that Atticus is okay setting up Jem for murder in order to protect Boo Radley because Jem is so young he won't actually go to jail. Like there's a weird moment where it seems like he's sort of throwing Jem on the fire. Well, I think what he's trying to do is save another innocent man from having a untimely demise. I mean, this this man, uh, Boo Radley, just saved his family. His son will not go to jail in any way. So I feel like what is happening there is he's trying, he doesn't believe in the court system. He, you know, he doesn't want to put anyone under that scrutiny again because he knows the way society treats him, uh, the way that he is viewed. And it, it doesn't matter if it's black or white. It just is like they view him as an outcast. They view him as an insane person. He is going to be just not able to get a fair trial. So let's, not even do it anymore. That's what his lesson learned. I mean, in a weird way, his arc is learning that the system doesn't work. Yeah, and I want to actually play like a clip of what the sheriff says in response to that because Mm -hmm. it feels sort of like a biblical morality, I guess. Mm. It's it's an interesting take on having to, to make peace in a small town. There's a black man dead for no reason. Now the man responsible for it is dead. Let the dead bury the dead this time, Mr. Finch. I never heard tell it was against the law for any citizen to do his utmost to prevent a crime from being committed, which is exactly what he did. But maybe you'll tell me it's my duty to tell the town all about it, not to hush it up. Well, you know what'll happen then. 
all the ladies in Maycomb, including my wife, will be knocking on his door, bringing angel food cakes. To my way of thinking. Taking one man who's done you in this town a big service and dragging him with his shy ways into the limelight. To me, that's a sin. It's a sin. And I'm not about to have it on my head. I may not be much, Mr. Finch, but I'm still sheriff of Macomb County. And Bob Ewell fell on his knife. Good night, sir. I mean, is that his Atticus Finch moment? I wonder. I mean, it is a different legal system. It's a legal system outside the legal system. And he's using God. He's invoking God the way that Atticus invoked God to the jury. He's driving it home. And it's what's winning in the end. But, you know, here's the thing that I was really thinking about this whole watch. Like, we've been talking a lot about the story and what it means and all of the ripples that it has. What I don't think had ever occurred to me so clearly until this watch of To Kill a Mockingbird is just how influential I think this film was as a film in genres that like may not even really relate to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like the opening scene. I want to play like just like a little bit of the opening music because Elmer Bernstein, who did the music for this, he had a hard time because he was like, how do you capture yeah, the sound of childhood? And I feel like the sound he came up with is like the proto Spielberg sound. Like watching this movie, I thought, oh yeah, you know who saw this movie a million times? Steven Spielberg. Boom, 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 boom. If that is not E.T. There's something so lovely about that. I have a, a baby monitor in my my both my son's rooms. And uh, I got up early to watch this movie this morning and he got up early as well, but he was just in bed. And that is kind of what I was hearing him like talking to himself and humming and kind of singing. And it's like what that opening is doing is it's kind of putting you in, you know, scout space We're we're literally in a private moment with this child. And it was so kind of interesting to have that juxtaposition be listening to it in real life and seeing it on the screen and that's and that is a lot of the director Robert Mulligan here just kind of letting that opening scene lull you into this nice like we talked about earlier this nice like kind of Terrence Malick Richard Linkletter like we're in a world and you're getting all these close-ups of the things that Boo Radley left for them you Mm -hmm. know all these things in the toy box we don't know that yet but we don't know that yet but it's this extreme close-up and it's really beautiful the way he like moves the camera. You see this marble roll. Like... Which, by the way, you see the crew members in the marble. Oh, you do? Yep. <laughs> what, Motley Crew? Motley Crew. Yeah. Like, yeah! <laughs> Atticus! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, there's some stuff in here that I think Mulligan does that winds up being crazy influential. You know, I feel like this film sets the template for how we did the modern kids film. Except mm-hmm. I think we shoehorn a little more save the cat template into yes. it. But I think it really has this like This is Goonies. This is, yeah. you know, Super 8. This is, you know, this is Stranger Things. This is honoring the world of the child. And then also in this watch, what I noticed that I was like, oh my God, I feel like this movie definitely influenced this other movie. And I'm gonna sound like a crazy person saying it out loud, but Halloween. Oh, I swear, this movie turns into a horror movie a lot. 
because it's through the kids' eyes. They're getting mm. freaked out all the time. Yeah. And it's like this movie, there's like looming kind of Michael Myers-esque shadows right. going over porches. And that same kind of houses and small Suburbs. streets. Yeah. There's that whole sequence where Scout is walking alone down a sidewalk with leaves everywhere. Yeah. And it, she's dressed exactly, exactly like So the second like horror film on this Laurie list, would Strode. you say? I mean – I feel like there's a lot of touchstones in here that made it into John Carpenter's life, which would make sense. Like John Carpenter, I get into this a little bit on my Halloween podcast. He was he made Halloween being really radicalized by what he saw as the racial problems of the South growing mm-hmm. up in um, Bowling Green, Kentucky. And he turned what he saw about the problem of racism in that town into Halloween, into the story of the suburbs. You just see it here. Like the whole scene where Scout and Jem are walking through the woods – the completely a horror movie that feels like right. every slasher movie ever made. Absolutely, I mean, we're getting caught in the the fence, you know, getting the pain. You know, it's like that kind of moment. You know, that's that's everything. I mean, that's you know, everybody gets caught. You know, I can't, but I, yeah, come back. No, you know, it's like, and you know, the only difference is that you know that that kid would be sliced and diced. Exactly. Um, I mean, listen to a little bit of like this scene from when they're getting chased by Yule in the woods. Okay. I hear it now. I bet it's just old Jacob trying to scare him. Say Jacob, send a big wet It's such a horror movie. Yeah, and then when they get right. attacked, all you see is like her eyes and the hands coming and covering her eyes in yeah. this cam costume. Yeah, oh my costume. god, that that costume, it's such a it's such a beautiful way to show this crazy thing because you're really again, like Clarice in Silence of the Lambs, you're you're capturing her point of view of it and it it, it is a mess and it's not clean. It's you you know, it's uh yeah, you're you're just catching glimpses. Um if anyone out there is good with editing please cut together a to kill a mockingbird horror movie trailer i think that would be great would oh take my god to the kill internet a mockingbird. <laughs> um Amy- it would take the internet by storm oh and my last thing yeah is there an edward scissorhands if there's not a boo radley i mean look there's always this idea of the strange man who lives at the end of the block i mean it's it, it that idea you know, is, you know, who's in that house? You, you've seen the fun version of that, which is like the Adams family or the Monsters. And then you've seen, you know, like you've seen Edward Scissorhands. There's so many versions of don't go down there. Don't go in there, you know, at pupil. Uh, you know, there's so much of that. Uh, I'm pulling out random, yeah, really, really deep random ones and then things today. that are so uh, <laughs> stupidly apparent. Although I do want to say, like, we were talking about the 2019 eyes. I wish I could take off my 2019 eyes and not see Boo Radley as a creep. Because, like, we're coded now that if you have a man smiling benevolently at a passed out child who wants to pet him, Mm. that that man is a creep. And he's not a creep to this movie in that moment. And I don't know how to feel loving in that moment the way that I feel like I I would have known how to. It's tough. It's tricky. I think we're always dealing with, you know, our our perspectives of now and, and... and also the limitations that the writers of the time had to deal with this material. Like, is Boo Radley someone who's shy or is Boo Radley someone who's mentally handicapped? Or is he an he, abused child? He stabs and we also hear that he stabbed when he was a kid yeah. like because his parents were abusive. So it's – Ooh, creating, that's Shades of Buffalo Bill. No, I know. It's like, and, you're, and you're creating 
these thumbnail sketches of very complex personas. I often believe when you have a book that is as influential as this, especially talking about a topic like this, um, when you make a movie of it, it reaches more people. And I think that that's important. I think it's, we talked about Jonathan Demi last week doing uh, Philadelphia. You know, these things are sometimes the only way to mainline a change. Will and Grace goes into the culture and, you know, Maybe it's not the best thing at when it first comes out, you know, and, and there's more subtlety to it, but you mainline it in and and then all of a sudden change slowly affects and, you know, we'll say this movie gets uh, three out of its eight Oscar nominations. It's, I, from what I can see, overwhelmingly uh, positively received. It's a box office success. Uh, it earns over 10 times its original budget. But were there people out there, Amy, that didn't like this film? Well, it got the sort of reviews I sometimes see nowadays for a film that is well-meaning, but people found a bit inert and they don't want to totally come out and say so. Um, so this is from The New Republic, and it says, If good is rarely found so unmixed as in here, if evil is not so handily contained like a beast in a zoo that can be seen and not felt, he says we all wish life were like that and we can enjoy a story as long as it is not too rude to the credibility. But I think he does seem to find it's a little bit too rude to human credibility. And he says that the film, you know, deals well with the actors, but then he gets a little mean. He says, quote, particularly the least two talented members of the cast, Mary Badham, the wow. child who plays Scout. Oh, she's fantastic. And Gregory Peck, who plays her father. Fucking asshole. Okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, the critic says, this part is cut so close to his limitations that the edges yep. are usually concealed. Totally, yep. Cool. And then, like, he takes a little Send bit of it. your editor. <laughs> Hot take. He takes a little of a dig at the sheriff. He mm -hmm. says, Frank Overton has an impressive presence as a sheriff, but is developing the kind of Spencer Tracy or Coca-Cola technique. Before every reply, a pause that refreshes. Oh, boy. And then he kind of ends on like a shrug. You know, except for an occasional strained scene, like the one where the girl confronts a lynch, lynch mob with her father, it is pleasant. And I will <laughs> say, actually, the scene with the lynch mob is her least convincing performance. Yeah. She's like, Mr. Cunningham, I go to school with your kid. But I do feel like what I love about that scene is when she recognizes him and then the embarrassment that he feels, like, of being seen. He's a part of a scene and then he's being called out. And it's like that mob mentality is broken when you individualize something. Yeah, it's the it. It puts the yes, lynch I was just in, about in the, to say in that. the yeah. lynch mob. It puts um, the pitchfork in the lynch mob. Uh, I call out Mr. Cunningham and it goes home. <laughs> all right, Amy, um, is there a Simpsons? Oh, there's like 8 million I was going to say, like, I, 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 I was going to even ask, was Gregory Peck ever on The Simpsons. <laughs> he was alive enough to overlap with yeah. The Simpsons. Um, there's a lot of Simpsons. There's a lot of visual Simpsons jokes. There's like um, an itchy and scratchy episode uh, that you see where they're, where they're doing a little skit called To Kill a Talking Bird. Uh, but then there's a newer episode. It's from an episode called Daticus Finch. Oh. Or should we say Zadicus Finch? <laughs> <laughs> it's Daticus Finch. Um, and it's an episode where Lisa has to be in a school play. She's dressed as a pork chop. She's very mad about it. So Homer takes her shopping and he's like, let's buy you some new clothes. But when they get to the clothing store, he realizes all the clothes are too sexy for little kids. So he goes on this big rant about how we sexualize children. And suddenly Lisa Simpson, who I guess has always been kind of a scout character herself, she visually sees Homer Simpson transform into Gregory Peck, transform into Atticus Finch as she's holding a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. And then the two of them, I mean, this is like a crazy episode. The two of them, Homer and Lisa, become obsessed with To Kill a Mockingbird. What? They literally watch the movie in this cartoon. 
I'd always liked my dad, but this was something new and wonderful. I admired him. The way he'd take me to the science museum once a year. And then, and then what happened is because of their increased closeness, Bart does some rebelling stuff. He makes the town really mad at him. The town shows up at their house. And Homer goes out and tries to Atticus Finch to crowd. And, of course, Lisa wants to be Scout. Excuse me, Mr. Sizzler. Mr. Sizzler, we know you. My father likes to drink at your bar. You can't say hi to me. <laughs> and how about you, Chief Wiggum? I go to school with your boy, Ralph. Give my regards to Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go, people. They've diffused us. Everyone get uh, get one last mutter in. <laughs> so I guess my question is, does it belong on the list? You know, it's weird. Like, I kind of came in thinking, we have the book. Do we need the movie? Mm-hmm. Honestly. And it really was me sitting down and thinking about this movie as like a foundational text for so many filmmakers working today, that's when this film actually started to resonate with me more as like, you are a movie. You well, are actually a movie that I think, I think this movie has rippled out in ways that I was not even expecting to see. Well, that's what we're talking about. It's like, it. it is, this movie is from a directing, acting, thematic, genre, and just pure like in pop culture even if we don't know it we you know it's right under the surface i would say this is probably one of the biggest films that we've ever done like and i think it goes back to what you were saying that a lot of the biggest directors in the 70s in the 80s this was an influential text for them and then there then the people who were young kids in the 80s and 70s then they copied that so we're making copies of copies of copies and uh, it all comes back to this it's true and you know it also passes the test of of this movie being incredibly influential to the people who kind of run our country mm-hmm. you know, we've seen this happen a couple of times high noon presidents love high noon because yeah. it's like me out there alone oh nobody nobody will back me but i'll do what's right and also mr smith again me out there like naive yeah. and oh i'm gonna fight for what's right well, you know, we have High Noon presidents, we have Mr. Smith presidents, and we had an Atticus Finch president. Who's like, that? Obama worships Atticus of Finch. Of course. Worships Atticus Finch. I mean, when they showed To Kill a Mockingbird on TV, Obama introduced it. Uh, when To Kill a Mockingbird had its 50th anniversary, Obama hosted a screening at the White House. Harper Lee came. Harper wow. Lee came. And get this. When Obama gave his farewell speech, his last speech, he said this. It won't change overnight. Social attitudes oftentimes take generations to change. But if our democracy is to work the way it should in this increasingly diverse nation, then each one of us need to try to heed the advice of a great character in American fiction, Atticus Finch, who said, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. I mean, walk around in skin, you know? It's truly beautiful. Truly Atticus Finch. Truly Barack Obama. Truly Buffalo Bill. Oh, no. (laughs) But that is a great, look, it's a great moral. Like, we should think more about this. I felt like I was getting dad lessons. I felt like this movie was my father. Not that my father needs to be replaced. I I just like, I felt like. (laughs) Does your father stay on the list? My father stays on the list. No, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's certain things that we don't talk about in entertainment, you know, morals and things that in this film just hits a few of them so effortlessly. 
and so strongly that that line sticks out to me too. It's it's a great it's a great way to look at life. I think this movie really just yeah, it kind of wowed me. I, I really again I had a real journey with this one. Amy, let's talk about next week. Uh, we are moving forward to our fiftieth film, a film which many people uh, say should be the number one film on the AFI list. I've heard this by many of people. It's uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. So Vertigo kicked around a lot of different titles. I'm sure we're going to get into that next week before deciding on Vertigo, before giving Jimmy Stewart this sort of disorienting, complicated thing where he stands on step letters and wants to pass out. So here is my call and suggestion for you guys this week. Pitch me another Hitchcock movie said anytime you want based on another disorder. Go. And when I say go, I mean call in to 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 with your Hitchcock film based on another disorder. Thanks again to our friends at Turo for sponsoring this week's episode of Unspooled. Turo, the newest revolution in renting a car, not from some counter, but from a member of Turo. We're talking like 9 million people, 850 types of different cars, rent something on vacation, rent something in your own town, rent like a vintage van. They've got vintage vans. You want to rent a vintage van and drive it out to the desert and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm accomplishing the thing I always wanted to do when I was nine. You can do that on Toro. So download the Toro app. That's T-U-R-O on the Apple Store, Google Play, or visit Toro.com. And remember, you can get $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Toro and use the promo code UNSPOOLED at checkout. Terms apply. Go have fun. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> Ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.